Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 12, air date April 7th, 2013. Welcome to VA Shiva series on Are You Ready to Build a Revolution? Today's talk is on imperialism and the feudal lords of Tamil Nadu, the real oppressors of the Tamil people. I want to begin this talk by sharing with you some of my earliest activist work on the campus of MIT as a young 16-year-old who started really learning revolutionary politics. This is a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of the MIT Student Center. And this sort of bold movement was really not to do something just for the sake of being radical, but given what was going on in South Africa where you had ma massacres by this very minority government on large amounts of, of, of black people, we decided we show show support. So when we organized this movement at MIT, uh, we didn't make it your typical left liberal movement, which is typically liberals talking about something 10,000 miles away, but not doing anything locally. Our movement at MIT was uh, not only talking about apartheid in, in South Africa, but we also connected to the fact that the food service workers uh, at MIT, in fact, workers were treated in a very segregationist way. So we drove the message home right on campus. So it was a very powerful protest. And um, it led to me marching up to the president's office and Paul Gray's on the left side, very upset. Some of you I know I've shared the story with. But MIT had, you know, a um, considerable amount of investments for, for a company in South Africa, and they have obviously had their own logic why they should not remove it. But so my activism days, this is back in 85, and then in 86, you know, which is almost 27 years ago, you know, this is a Sri Lankan movement where uh, one of my uh, colleagues at MIT was a student, had gone back to Sri Lanka to actually fight in the struggle to liberate the Tamil people. He was held by the Sri Lankan government, and then we ran a protest to get him out. On the occasion, MIT had sort of the gall to host actually the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka. One of their alumni was actually beaten and tortured in Sri Lanka. So we um, held a protest at MIT. And uh, the lessons from that protest, I think, are still valid today. Um, my activism continued, you know, this is my PhD uh, graduation at MIT in 2007, and the United States still had. Um, tremendous amount of presence in Iraq and uh, a number of speakers were including Muhammad Yunus was speaking but everyone sort of forgot there's this massive war going on so I thought it was important to let people be aware of that and then more recently in 2009 I exposed corruption in the Indian government while I was an additional secretary almost like a deputy director in the Indian government and obviously they had serious repercussions for me and my family um, but Manmohan Singh, who's the Prime Minister of India, is actually the titular head of this organization, which you see as CSIR. And um, in 2009, I released a report while in a government position, um, sharing with the, my fellow colleagues, 4,500 scientists, that if India had to move forward to really innovate and unleash their power to innovate, that. Um, we would have to really take a new path forward, and that path forward mean, meant 
meaning more transparency, openness, and the elimination of corruption within the organization. That obviously was not taken well, led to me being fired, um, and uh, this appeared on the front page of Hindustan Times. And then subsequent to that, I gave an interview for Star News, for which I was actually uh, threatened prior to the giving the news that I would be jailed. Uh, I felt it important because I felt my constituency was really not the government, but ordinary people from where I came from. My grandparents were poor farmers who had grown up, and I felt if I had had this opportunity to speak to millions of people, I should definitely take it, and it would be frankly cowardly and self-serving if I didn't. And so I did that. The news had crossed the New York Times, uh, a lot of different newspapers, and one of the scientists in within the organization, who was one of the oldest scientists within the organization, P.M. Barkov, actually spoke up. He actually wrote to the prime minister and clearly said in his uh, letter to the Prime Minister that what I had done was justified, that my criticisms were justified, that the report was excellent, and that it would be a great pity if I had to leave. And obviously the Prime Minister of India, who basically serves his, his uh, particular vested interest, really had no um, uh, reason to meet with me, at least from his perspective. So I submitted my resignation, which was here and said how unfortunate it was that I was not able to serve my motherland and that I had to subsequently leave at night because I was threatened with arrest and death threats and I left, crossed the Nepal border, went to Qatar, Great Britain, and as some of you know, came back home. And then Nature asked me to write an article, which I did call Innovation Demands Freedom. This article was published by the editors of Nature India, approved by them, they liked it because they too were concerned why this this. Uh, you know, well-funded organization had produced less than $20,000 a month in innovation value and a few paltry ideas. So, um, by the way, all the stories up on innovationdemandsfreedom.com with all the documentation up there sharing what happened. But the entire story really made me think about cultural narratives and who writes narratives. You know, there's this narrative that had been written in India that, um, uh, you know, you have to be a certain way to innovate, which also came up with some of the things with the email controversy. And much of these narratives um, were based on a priesthood, who I believe is in academia and controls large institutions, who believe that they can control um, uh, these narratives and actually say whatever they want. I mean, the example of the Catholic Church, for nearly 400 years, it took 400 years to absolve this guy, Galileo, who simply said that the sun was the center of the earth. Uh, it's pretty um, amazing, and it, it was only 1992, um, nearly 400 years later, that uh, Galileo was absolved by the Catholic Church. But this kind of event is not only held within the religious priesthood, but also the academic priesthood. And we see this example uh, with this report written by Frederick Mishkin, who um, was funded by the Icelandic government wrote this report called The Financial Stability in Iceland, didn't forthrightly reveal that, a very nicely done scholarly report. And uh, fortunately, a good investigative uh, journalist, reporter, documentarian, uh, Charles Ferguson, revealed in this movie, The Inside Job, by Ferguson, how uh, Mishkin had essentially had connections uh, that was paid by the Icelandic government. And then following his report, there was this quote-unquote stunning collapse of the Icelandic economy. And we all know how billions of dollars were sent to Iceland and, and largely based on reports like Michigan's, so-called experts and, and independent advisors. We also know that for many years, doctors advised patients um, 
to use uh, to smoke. And in fact, Robert Proctor recently revealed that how um, for nearly 50 years, scientists and doctors colluded to put quite a number of papers out there saying that smoking was not damaging to you. So this all brings us to today's topic because when you really look at it, um, it is very, very um, uh, important that we all take responsibility for our own lives. Um, we cannot fully trust um, so-called academics. They have in many ways failed our trust, nor can we trust the existing structure of vested interest. Now what's interesting is, if you really look at the economics of the world, there's more than enough um, productivity in many ways, and obviously we have to address this issue of burning fossil fuels, but we have the ability to create heaven on earth. And the only ingredient that's missing is our personal courage to do it. Now I know for a fact in India, I had a transcendental experience and I took the courage to do it, but if I had more people, we definitely could have more exposed the government and potentially really had significant change. So it's not the number of people, but it's a core group of people having the courage that bring other people on. So I'm convinced about that approach. Now, if you look at India, this is what's interesting. Here's India, and if you look at the literacy rates in India, India's literacy rates are, in fact, below the world literacy rates. And in fact, India is below Brazil. Um, now, obviously, India claims to be the largest democracy. Russia exceeded literacy within a few years after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and India has taken 60 years and you still have massive discrepancies in wealth. Here's a corruption index that just came out in 2011 by Transparency International. It's a little bit hard to read, but I'll point you right here is India and India's um, 96. And um, those of you on the call who know about what's going on with Sri Lanka, um, obviously it's important to expose the Sri Lankan government, but we can see the Sri Lankan government is actually several points better than the Indian government. Um, relative to democracy, India is actually considered a flawed democracy. It's not a full democracy. Um, and it's no different than the democracies we see across Mexico or some of the uh, democracies in, um, in, in sort of the you know, Far East Asian islands. The more important one that in fact the UN puts out is called the Human Development Index. And what you see here is the Human Development Index is a function of life expectancy, mean years of schooling and gross national income. When you consider all of these and the population, you find out India falls around 134. Below Iraq, which has gone through you know, several wars, below Vietnam, which has gone through many types of things, and obviously Egypt, Philippines, Thailand, China and Algeria. So India's, uh, and this is with about 1.1 billion people, and, and China, if you notice here, is about 1.3 billion people. So when you look at these numbers um, and the population, um, regardless of the height that you hear, this is a reality of the Human Development Index in these countries. Obviously, on the other end, you have Norway, Australia, Netherlands, the United States in the top five over here. So India and China are significantly far away from these economies over here. Um, this is obviously a picture of the Taj Mahal, you know, with uh, one of India's leading ladies advertising it. But what's abhorrent about this picture is that when you really look behind the Taj Mahal, this is the actual picture of the Taj Mahal with a tremendous amount of pollution. The rivers are essentially absolutely polluted. They're unusable. So photoshopping here does a lot to help with these pictures. But the other interesting thing, when we talk about pollution, uh, Delhi exceeded all the major cities in, in China, plus the Middle East, including Karachi and uh, Islamabad, as the most polluted city in the world.
So who were the leadership of India? He's like, here's actually Nehru, who's promoted as a visionary leader, but you know, the reality was him and Edwina Mountbatten were very close in many ways, which is a room for a whole other discussion. Um, but, Edwi, uh, but Nehru was essentially a Raj himself, got trained in Cambridge, and he was essentially, in many ways, poised to be the Prime Minister of India. But India never really had a revolution. In fact, the documents were called the transfer of power. And this document really defined how the British elite transferred to the Indian elite. So India never really had a revolution. The whole thing with Gandhi, it's a great story. Um, but when you really look at the reality, Gandhi was essentially a, um, a, essentially a mascot of the powers that be. And they promoted a lot of illusion into the Indian populace on how to conduct revolution and what was appropriate. They bounded the whole problem. But more importantly, when you go to the details relevant to today's discussion that came out of the um, things in Sri Lanka, if you read the transfer of power, which I actually did uh, um, back when I did some work with Noam Chomsky as an undergrad, you'll find out that um, what's central to this transfer of power was the British uh, ensuring that the those who took over India or who they passed on power, who were their subjects, um, would ensure the security right here, the security of the Indian Ocean. And why is that important? The Indian Ocean actually turns out it's the most strategic ocean in the entire world. In fact, if you go on to, as of March 3rd, uh, yesterday, on the Ministry of Defense of the Sri Lankan government, they actually talk about the strategic importance of the eastern province. This whole area, what people are calling for where the Tamils are, in fact, where they've been subjugated and brutally abused, one of the areas is right up here on the right corner, is called Trincomalee, and it has a little star. Trincomalee is an extremely valuable port. In fact, it's a harbor. Since the fifth century India, it's been one of the most valuable harbors. Submarines can move in there. There's very little you have to do to build. Ships can come and go. It's actually uh, uh, some people call it the pearl of the, of the Indian Ocean because anyone who controls Trincomalee controls the trading routes throughout the entire Indian Ocean. So this is why when you step back, this is why uh, when the Tamil people rising here for their own independence, um, this kind of quote-unquote destabilization was a reason that the Western powers, including the Eastern powers, China and Indian government and Israel and the United States all went in and essentially obliterated these Tamil fighters. Albeit they had different issues going on among themselves, but the bottom line was imperialist powers needed to own Trincomalee. And this is why in India, you see, this is on the bottom right, Sonia Gandhi, who is the daughter-in-law of the, uh, or the wife of the former Prime Minister of India, who's the son of the former Prime Minister of India, who's the daughter of Jawaharlal Nehru. So you essentially have a dynasty ruling India. And here is Sonia Gandhi um, meeting with Rajapakse, who should be uh, at minimum in jail. and. Uh, and at minimum. But here is Sonia Gandhi meeting with Rajapaksa, but here's Sonia Gandhi meeting with the current governor of Tamil Nadu, Jayalalitha, and the former governor. These two people, the guy, these, the frog-like looking guy with the dark glasses on the left, and the woman on the right, um, appeared always assumed power in Tamil Nadu, which is a South Indian country, uh, South Indian state, and they act as though that they're against each other, very much like the Democrats and Republicans, but they all serve the same people. And this is a duopoly that goes on and confuses people. And they keep getting involved in these voting habits of voting for, you know, Tweedledee or Tweedledum. But the reality is 
the, both, all these uh, individuals here get paid significant amounts of money to ensure the stability of that region. But when we step back and we look at the, you know, the amount of abuse that has gone on to these ordinary people who've been in the midst of this crossfire, it really uh, makes us want to step back. And when we look at the, the movement that I participated back in 27 years ago, it, it begins uh, to be clear that you cannot put any faith in any existing political parties, that we really need to move, build a movement. Um, this is actually shot in Tahrir Square in Egypt. We know that in Egypt there was a, a movement that came absolutely from the grassroots. And friends of mine who were in Egypt said, you know, when these when the students and people came out, that the garbage was picked up on time, there was proper security, better than what the government was doing. Intellectuals uh, and so-called left intellectuals like to scare uh, people saying that, you know, revolution is scary, it's going to be angry. But the reality is ordinary people do not want to just go kill each other. This is a myth. If anything, the armies and the nations of the world have done most of the killing. People essentially want a better life. And this is another example of what's going on in Italy. Here in Italy, uh, this, the Five Stars movement came, uh, again, grounds up. Um, and it's moved all across Italy. And this grassroots movement now controls nearly 30% of parliament. One of the key tenets of this movement was do not talk to the press. When you really, when you look at the three or four major press cartels, we know that they're all uh, controlled by large vested interests, and no one should go try to put press releases and try to convince them. That's what the Movimiento Seis uh, or Cinco Estrella did in in um, Italy, and they've got considerable amount of power, um, and they did it all grassroots with a core set of principles, and that's what I want to talk about today. Um, by the way, when you look at India, this is sort of the demographics of India. It's almost this very interesting inverse hourglass where you see 70% of India is below the age of 40 and 50%, all this bottom area, is below the age of 25. And you look at America, it's a little bit different, right? Uh, it's, it's a very different demographic. Our baby boomers are right here in the bulk of it, right in the middle. But when you look at the developing nations, you see that same curve that as you see in India. It's this huge number of young people below the age of 40 and 25 and um, the issue becomes are there enough jobs to serve these people Jim Clifton you know he's a chairman of Gallup he himself has warned the existing uh, uh, people in power that if you don't create enough jobs you're gonna have significant civil unrest and basically he's essentially saying uh, get your act together in whatever way that means um, and either find a way to provide jobs or, or, or find other solutions. But uh, what's interesting in India is nearly, um, if you add these numbers up, 49%, which are 18 to 24, 8% 16 to 17, and 5%, this is nearly 62% um, of the people uh, on Facebook um, are 20 under, uh, of Indians are under the age of 24. So what I wanted to talk about is if we need to build a movement, how do we go about doing that? You know, it's not, um, you know, this is a, something that we're playing around with, but, you know, the, the concept here is what is the core concept? And one thing that I want to put forward is that everyone deserves heaven on earth here and now. What this means is that there's enough resources, if we, if we, if we uh, properly use it, that everyone can have an extremely uh, great life. All the productive forces are there. And the other thing is this, this is not something that should take 50 years. It's something we want here and now, and that's really justice, not after a bunch of people have died, but what do we want now? So to support this, I thought we'd review 
an article that I wrote called The Seven Principles of Revolution and then open it up to discussion. Uh, it's about 1229. And um, these principles were based on my own, uh, you know, sort of 40 years of experience as an activist, but also looking at what are the framework, not saying do this or do that, but actually what are the framework that you ensure almost like a, a vessel through which people can uh, lay down other core principles to build a revolutionary movement and which also ensures that that revolutionary movement doesn't get uh, corrupted in any way. Today we have the, the, the left and the right and they each have uh, all different things they say on how to bring out change. And what we wanted to do here was really come down to principles that are neither left nor right, but based on um, core things that can really help a revolution. The first one is every revolutionary movement must be local, right? And what I meant by this is when you look back at the apartheid movement, it was very easy for, let's say, uh, quote-unquote white liberals in the United States to talk about uh, poor black people 10,000 miles away. In fact, in Boston, which was a huge center for the integration fight and during this busing program, you had uh, at MIT a lot of, um, you know, uh, predominantly uh, people who got involved in the apartheid movement, in this case, uh, white liberals, they would talk about apartheid almost as though it was 10,000 miles away. But many of these people would not even go to their local neighborhoods, which were predominantly black, which were probably three miles away. And this kind of hypocrisy is what uh, many of the, and by the way, I'm not a right winger or a left winger, what the left wing of the Democratic Party does, which is why there's very little movement in the United States, is that it constantly promotes this concept of talking about other things, talking about freeing people, but will not address things right here. So the way you address that is that revolutions must be local. If we're going to talk about apartheid in South Africa, we should talk about segregation here. If we're going to talk about workers' wages of miners in South Africa, let's talk about here. So the first thing, it has to be local. Second thing is, this is a very, um, for some people it's controversial, which is every citizen um, must be armed. Now again, this is not uh, to talk about the exceptional cases where you've seen Columbine shootings, these kinds of things. This is more at a fundamental level that, in, in fact, our founding fathers wanted to ensure that um, people, there would be no standing armies. In fact, if you want to talk about who's really armed and violent, it's the governments of most of the largest nations in the world. They're the ones who are the violent. They're the ones who have the most arms. What we're talking about here is basic, almost like driver's education, um, that people should know how to use arms, at least to send a signal to those in power that we too have the right to defend ourselves. That's what arm, arming here means. The next piece is equal access to all information. You know, this is what has caused the academic priesthood. You know, for example, at MIT, I can get access to nearly a whole bunch of documents, information. Um, Widener Library at Harvard, for example, has some important documents. In fact, it has documents of Gandhi's memoirs where he, he clearly his nonviolence was limited to nonviolence against the British. In his own memoirs, he talks about after the Indians were uh, tortured and beaten, that he thought the punishment was just. So there are documents and information that is only today accessible to the few. E equal access to all means information everyone has access to. But this also means that we end the tenure process. The entire process of tenure in academia creates this um, very oppressive hierarchy, which is a reason that as people move up that hierarchy, they think they're better than everyone else. When we talk about democratic centralism, it is, I believe, valuable to have some level of hierarchy and leadership because you can get things done. Nature has this. 
However, that hierarchy should be limited in the sense we need to have rotation, uh, maybe two-year terms at most, and this is essentially what the Italians have done in their movement. The other part is, you know, sometimes large-scale nationalist socialist movements, quote-unquote socialist movements, sometimes ignore the fact there is the, the sense of individual interests and talents, not to say individualism should be put forth before everything, but people do have different interests. Some people like to play music, other people like to go garden, and other people like to study science, so movements need to recognize these individual talents. The sixth one, getting ready to Jim Clifton's issue, and my own experience with inventing email as a kid, a narrative uh, which, uh, the truth, frankly, which attacked the narrative of those in power, um, is that innovation uh, can take place anytime, anyplace, by anybody, and the framework needs to be put in place so innovation does not only occur at MIT and Stanford, but in every inner city and village. And finally, this is a very important one because if you really look at the energy thermodynamics of the world today, one will find out that the amount of fossil fuel we're burning uh, is, uh, uh, is, is, is untenable in many ways. The modern way capitalism operates, it needs cheap labor, so it has to produce overpopulation. So let me repeat that, capitalism needs lots of labor, so it has to produce tons of people and then because it has lots of people, then it uses those people and can pay them low wages. And as a result of that, we have to use massive amounts of fossil fuel to run this. Physical labor is directly connected to this, and we can have a longer discussion about this, because if each one of us put in a certain amount of physical labor, fundamentally energy, you can significantly reduce the amount of fossil fuel needs. And this occurs, again, at the local level. So I consider these, um, again, there are many principles, and if you look back at most revolutionary movements, that went into authoritarian, you'll typically realize one of these got violated. It stopped being local, ordinary citizens were disarmed, information access was limited, but one of these got violated. So if these principles are done, or at least some version of these, we can ensure that a real people's movement can take place. So my intention in this live webinar was to really share with you my history of activism in the context of helping you understand that the real forces of imperialism, and in this case, when we look at this uh, Tamil issue, the feudal lords right in Tamil Nadu are the ones that need to be exposed with a core uh, principle of a revolutionary movement. Otherwise, what we will have is a movement that simply talks about the Ilam situation in Sri Lanka and does not address what's going on right here at home in Tamil Nadu similar to how the apartheid movement uh, that took place out of South Africa, uh, much of it just addressed talking about South African apartheid but never talked about the situation at home. That is why it's extremely important we not just see this as an Elam Sri Lankan issue but we see it as an issue of what is going on right in Tamil Nadu and to the Tamil people more broadly. So anyway that ends our uh, talk today on imperialism and the feudal lords of Tamil Nadu, the real oppressors of the Tamil people. And I look forward to sharing with you the next talk in the upcoming series. Thank you.